0: RealWaterSports.com is our retail partner today. And we often talk about their 1500 board inventory. When I hear that number, uh, it makes me think, wow, they'll probably have what I want or something similar to what I want. But what else is great is if you don't know exactly what you want, they have surfboard review videos on their website. They've spent a bunch of time kind of building this out. This is one little angle where they've realized they can add value to the retail space. So they ride the surfboards, they then review them, they show footage of them riding the boards, explain some of the design concepts, the construction, the details. And the main purpose of that is to give you the information to make a decision, but their staff is very knowledgeable as well. And so they are there to help you get the right board for your needs and for your local waves. This is a classic old timey retail experience, customer service based but with the benefit of the internet. So they can do them in a video format and they're actually available by phone too. So just a fantastic partner. I'm thrilled with them, realwatersports.com. They're based in North Carolina, but they've really unlocked the code for shipping surfboards. So they do it for a flat fee and they guarantee the board to show up blemish free. So you can order it from anywhere in the world and based on their competitive pricing and their flat shipping fee, you can often get the board to you for cheaper than you can get it from your local retailer. So, huge shout out, much love to realwatersports.com. Stephen Cooney was born into a very lucky place and time in history. It was Coleroy on the main drag running through the northern beaches of Sydney, New South Wales, Australia, in the mid-50s. He was surfing before he hit double digits, and while the surf was uncrowded by today's standards, it was full of influential figures. Big Wave Wally Wallace, Bob Pike, Nat Young, Wayne Lynch, Ted Spencer, Bob McTavish, Simon Anderson, George Greeno, And by the ripe age of 16, Stephen was recruited by good friend Albie Falson to take a trip to Bali for a new film that he was shooting. Bali had been largely uncharted at that time, and Stephen had actually never even been on an airplane. The trip and the film would alter Stephen's life immeasurably and surf culture worldwide. That film, Morning of the Earth, just celebrated its 50th anniversary last month. It's been remastered and is currently touring Australia, so hopefully you can make it to a screening, but if not, you can grab a remastered copy of the film, a coffee table book, and a soundtrack on vinyl at morningoftheearth.com. Anyways, back to Stephen. In mid-2020, as COVID was just unfolding, he decided to use that downtime to organize an old closet at home. During that process, he unearthed a cache of old black-and-white negatives, prints, and proof sheets. They were from the first few decades of his life, his travels with Albie, those early years documenting his time surfing with the founders of the shortboard revolution. He eventually shared those photos with a publisher friend, John Ogden, who encouraged Stephen to write down some stories associated with the photos. And as Stephen laid out these stories chronologically, A narrative became apparent, his narrative, his early life story. He then tracked down some family members and historians to help verify facts and details, create a context, and now, a short two years later, the project exists as an autobiography of Stephen Cooney, of course, but also of the Shortboard Revolution, of the film Morning of the Earth, and also of Tracks magazine. The book is called Unearthed, and it's published by Cyclops Press in Australia, and it's available in the U.S. through Chatwin Books. I, of course, linked to all of those things, how to find that book, on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Anyways, Stevens, an unassuming figure, someone who I knew very little about prior to reading his book which is excellent, by the way. So I was really eager to hear more about this fascinating time in surfing, about the process of writing an autobiography, and also of revisiting all of this stuff at the 50-year marker. So my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Stephen Cooney. I'll start by just asking how the screening went last week, or were there multiple screenings?
1: Uh, so far, it's been the screening um, in Melbourne,
0: okay.
1: which, which coincided with the actual anniversary of, of the, the first screening of *Morning of the Earth*, um, and it was it was it was jumping. There was uh, there was people lining up around the block an hour before the show started, so um, it was really exciting. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and the uh, the show went over really well. Great uh, audience participation, and uh, I'll be getting up to do uh, or getting on on video link to to do the um, to do the question and answers. Uh, created created some good buzz around the crowd as well. so that was great.
0: Yeah. I know the film was released to uh, like it was popular from the moment it was released. But is it surprising that fifty years later it's still resonating and finding new audience? Yeah, it's
1: a it's a it's a regularly asked question. I mean, I don't think anyone expected a surf movie to, um, to last, to, to have that sort of longevity. Um, But when you look at it, it's, when you now look at it 50 years later, it's, it's, it's still, it's, it's undertones are, are all still quite current and resonate with a lot of the population now, whether they're surfers or whether they're not. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the surfing is still relevant too, you know,
1: yeah, yeah, no, it still has, you know, the the again, I can only gauge on, on the audience participation down in Melbourne. It was and and like there was oohs and ahs and at certain points in the surfing, and you know, um, it, it it yeah, it absolutely absolutely does. The surfing's relevant because I think there's people who who now wish they were in that in that era and mm. they basically live their lives similar to that era and surf equipment that is based on that equipment. Yeah.
0: I know, had had the 50th anniversary been in the 2000s, early 2000s, I don't know that it would be as relatable because I feel uh, everybody was still writing, you know, super thin rockered shortboards. But now you're right, people are, if they're not writing equipment that's similar to that, they're writing equipment, like you said, that's based on that, has modern modifications but I'm still just trying to go as fast as I can down the line, find trim and do a good bottom turn, you know? <laughs>
1: you yeah. have yeah, to be happy with that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah that's, and that's um, what you guys were doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and trying to find a barrel when we could, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree totally. Uh, but the, the ethos of the movie is, is really timely. The, the whole ethos of the planet and the, and the nature of surfing as it as it was in a fairly pure form I think is still really relevant
0: more relevant now than ever you could argue I agree mm. um how long had it been since seeing the film
1: oh, it had been a while I, I saw it quite a, bit.
0: <laughs> I yeah. was a
1: little bit I was a little bit sick of Stephen Cooney so so I, I didn't sort of watch it on a daily basis but I guess it's been. Oh, I think before I sat down and watched the entire film, um, it's probably ten years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but but to see it to see it uh, re digitised that that was that was exciting, and it yeah. was up big like it was up bigger on screen than, than I remember it being when I first saw it. Um, but it's um, and and the colours are jumping. I mean, it's it's obviously made a big difference to the overall quality of the film, and and you know that's really exciting.
0: Uh, do you remember the first time that you saw the film?
1: Yeah, I do very well. <laughs> and you've read my book, haven't you?
0: I have. I would <laughs> love to hear. You. I'd love to hear you tell that story.
1: Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, it was sort of like um, I was. Of course, I was 15 years old, so I was getting a lift there. You know, I wasn't driving. I, you know, I didn't have a license, so I was relying on my friends, my you know, my people around me to to get me there and and for whatever reason, we turned up a little bit late. Um, And by the time we got there, of course, the theater was packed and the doors were closing and um, I had to convince them that I was actually in the movie and they didn't believe me at first and they decided they needed to go and get Albie or David, I can't remember who, but uh, decided they needed to go and get someone to to clarify. And uh, when they did let us in, um they let us sit on the stairs because there weren't any chairs there were not any seats left so we we watched the theater we watched it in the theater sitting on the sitting on the stairs you know, which was a common practice in australia in surf movies so, i mean yeah you know they'd overfill this they overfill the theater they let people sit on the stairs but yeah that was the first time
0: how did uh what did you think of the film then yeah when you first saw it
1: originally I, I was, well, I was, it was a sort of a slow build. I was involved with Morning of the Earth before it was called Morning of the Earth. And I was seeing rushes and um, material coming out of the product um, before it was actually released. So I was in, you know, I was hanging around the tracks office where, where at the same time they were doing Morning of the Earth. And so I was seeing the production happen and I was on the trips to places like Angary, the north coast of New South Wales and Lennox Head and um, places like that. And and so I was seeing a bit of the material and I was seeing the direction it was going in and the type of footage it was. Um, and so Albie has a particular feel in his footage and in his, in his editing. Um, so when I saw it, it was not such a big surprise, but it was more a surprise to see see and hear the reaction of the audience when I was sitting there and uh you know they, they were they were really excited and you know after the movie it was a, it was quite a buzz going on and obviously then it just um, exploded <laughs> it got very popular can,
0: <laughs> can you tell uh the story of your interaction with terry fitzgerald leaving the theater
1: yeah well <laughs> I think I'd, I think i had been in the water for too long that day and um and my eyes was, were pretty bloodshot and tired, um, and uh, so this watching the screen for that period of time, the, the time it was on, an hour and ninety or whatever what it is, um, my eyes became started to started to water, and um, so I uh, so when I was leaving the theatre, I, I was still a bit still a bit moist around the eyes, and Terry thought I was crying, and. Um, <laughs> came up to well he didn't he didn't know he didn't think that until he walked up to me and then when he walked up to me to sort of talk about the film um he um he noticed that I was tearing up or what looked like tearing up and and uh he just left me alone he said oh mate oh, I'll catch you another time you know <laughs> he said I was I was desperately emotional but that wasn't really the case I was just a bit tighter in the eyes
0: (laughs) yeah you know it's funny I could imagine when you're 15 years old you'd be embarrassed by that embarrassed that if you were crying that you were crying or that somebody would think that you were crying because you want to be macho when you're 15 but now that I'm older I would think that would be so endearing to Terry you know to see that you're having this emotional response to this beautiful film
1: yeah well it wasn't um yeah, and in those days it wasn't wasn't done thing. I mean, everyone was very manly, yeah. and you yeah. just didn't, you didn't tear up. You know that just you know you just didn't do that. And um, these days, much more acceptable, yeah, for sure. Totally.
0: Um, I want to talk about your origin story and how you discovered surfing, and were positioned to be around all these icons. And we'll also kind of do it through the stories that you tell in the book. Um. explain kind of, if you will, how you found surfing and um, where your family was located and that sort of thing.
1: Well, essentially, we moved um, from uh, sort of the the outer west of Sydney to which is nowhere near the coast and uh, moved to an area on the northern beaches of Sydney when I was uh, um, five months old. And... um, in a family of six kids I was the youngest and um and so we moved to this coastal area in you know, a lovely coastal area with plenty of surf around and um my brother was four years older than I um and he um basically he was introduced to surfing by an uncle um my father was then deceased um he he was he was, uh, he was participating in that area in, in surf life saving um, uh, you know which I've learned from only, the only reason I know that is because of my, of my research uh, to, to write the book but um, there's an uncle who, who used to come down and on the weekends from somewhere and um, and he used to take butch surfing originally and um, and then I just I just ended up at the, by the age of nine I had a, I had a, an actual fiberglass surfboard prior to that I was I was um, riding surf you know rubber mats surf planes things like that you know and um, and so yeah it was really an evolutionary thing within the family uh, but as as my brother's you know butcher's surfing ability and my surfing ability progressed it became very much um, you know, very much part of the local surf community. Uh, both of us, and uh, with boards uh, gravitating towards surfboard manufacturing, um, it, it put me really well positioned for a couple of free boards. And and um, and because we were fatherless, um, I was I was the uh, I was the, the the extra appendage. I had to you know basically I was hanging around with my brother and. Uh, he pretty much had to take me surfing because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to go surfing. So, so I was really just the grommet in the car or wherever, or you're walking down the beach or whatever. And so, and that was that was pretty much how it all started. Um, and we, uh, you know, spent we spent. You know, I didn't leave the Northern beaches for a while. Um, well, between nine and fifteen. <laughs> That was my first, that was my, 15 was my first flight um, overseas. So pretty much between those years, we did a lot of surfing and um, with my brother and with people like Nat Young and Wayne Lynch, um, Ted Spencer, um, just people who are regular contest surfers of the era, which is probably a little bit different to the contests of today. Simply because of the the, the equipment and, and the purse, and it was mostly amateur competitions. But um, so so I grew up around I, I grew up around surfboard manufacturing, uh, living on the beach, where there was plenty of options to surf in different conditions, and and I was surrounded by mentors who were just happened to be some of the best surfers in Australia.
0: Yeah. Uh, So, were you nine years old when you first started surfing?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, there's a sequence of images. I'll
1: I'll correct you. I'll correct you there. I'll correct myself there. I would say that I was nine when I first got my first got a fiberglass surfboard. I'm pretty sure I surfed loan boards prior to getting that surfboard, but around nine. Yeah.
0: You. There was a sequence of images in the book um, when you were eleven. I think in Naribin, yeah. and it's incredible. I mean, the fact that you even have photos of yourself surfing from that young of an age is unique, especially at a time when cameras weren't, you know, uh, everywhere. And the caption says that it's your second custom surfboard at the age of 11. <laughs> it's like, I was writing hand-me-downs for the first decade of my life. You know, I don't, I didn't get accustomed till I was in my twenties, probably.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. My first board was or, had a bright orange bottom. It was a cut down bolt okay, from a balsam male, and the second board was the first genuine custom that, that I had. So they were both customs, but were, the second board was um, was was my first genuine, like made from scratch, fiberglass circle, uh, and they they uh, they 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 it in pink, and now I, I, I'm not sure whether that was. Just to make me embarrassed, or if it was to um, allow other surfers to see me coming.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Because I <laughs> That's was funny
1: for the times. I was actually very short. Sure. You know, I was very small. I wasn't at nine years old. I was very small. There, one of you know, always the smallest person in the water. You know, because there wasn't a lot of nine-year-olds surfing in those days.
0: Okay, um, you start the book in eighteen seventy-five. Talking about your grandfather, how much research did you have to do, or was this all information that you had discussed with your family previously?
1: Yeah, no, the, the, my family history was—it it was, it was actually—it took a bit of work to get to get to that point. I had a certain amount of stuff from a couple of old photo albums, um, but like um, in regards to hard facts about it I had to do a bit of research fortunately I found um, a family by the name of Pike um, and they were they were relatives of ours distant distant relatives Um, and they had because of their lineage they had quite a lot of Cooney history in their in their in their files wherever they were and fortunately they were really generous and they made all that stuff available to me so a lot of it came from, and um, Bob Pike was um, was one of the best. He was he was one of the the best big wave surfers in my area at the time, and I didn't even know we were related. Um, so that was a nice thing to find out. And uh, he used to surf big like places that broke only when it was very very big, and he was a legend and you know, very well known, went to Hawaii, one of the first people to go to Hawaii from my area. Um, so it was nice to, to find out about that, um, but also to have access to their historical files. And, um, and, and then I did a little bit of extra research on top of that, just on the net and things like that, uh, with some help with John Ogden. Um, he, he researched a bit of my history as well to fatten it up a bit. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of a mixture of, of both. I didn't have a, a, a box of historical documentation just to, to pull from, or, and it wasn't in my memory bank, some of that stuff. So, yeah,
0: that's um, what I was curious about is um, you do recall a lot of detail from your childhood, and I'm sure a lot of it you couldn't research. I was just surprised how much detail you could recall.
1: Yeah, the, the historical stuff, obviously, you know, I didn't even know. You know, like it was it was had to, it had to be researched. I had to research it to make sure it was correct. what I knew of was some of the stuff that I was growing up with, the, the historical facts that have been passed to me verbally, were incorrect. You know, so oh, wow, it was great to, you know, and I'd always lived by certain information about my family, but um, uh, it was great so it was great to get documentation that actually confirmed or denied whether the information I had was correct so it was it was really good to do that and I think it's as accurate as I could I could get it you know. Mm.
0: Did you have many surviving relatives that you're you were able to uh, connect with and ask about some of the information?
1: Yeah but because of the nature of my family it, it uh, the keeping of, of historical records was not particularly um, enjoyable for them they didn't they didn't uh, they didn't sort of it didn't they didn't go that way. Not like now people have well, you know, in a lot of families they 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 like to have all that historical the history and the family tree and all that stuff. So that wasn't around when I was young.
0: Okay. Um you used the word catharsis in the introduction of the book. Can you tell me about the process of writing your story down?
1: Well, I'm not technically I'm not an author, you know. I mean I'm I'm just I spent, you know, I spent a lot of time in publishing uh, via, basically via my introduction with Tracks. Uh, I moved on and from there, from when I left Tracks, it was, I, I ended up working for another very large publishing company, uh, multitasking on projects. I was essentially an art director, but um, I ended up writing, you know, I ended up, I was capable of writing because my English was quite good. I, my schooling hadn't been that great, but for some reason I, I took to the words. So I'd been writing a bit of stuff, like um, surf stories and, and reviews and things like that in, in different publications, including tracks. And um, and so when it came to writing the book, um, it, I found it slow. I, I was quite a slow writer, I thought. Um, and it was... Um, but it was nice to... It was it was enjoyable. I enjoyed it um, but it wasn't like it was just free-flowing and I think now I speak to other authors they say, no, it never is. When you're writing something, you're always there's always some doubt in your mind of whether what you've just written is worth reading, how it, how it, how it fits together, how it flows, all those sorts of considerations. Um, but um, yeah, I did mention that it that it felt cathartic and, and cathartic because. Uh, a bit because of the historical aspects of it, you know, that, that as we were talking about before, you know, about my history. But it was also cathartic to put pen to paper about other um, facts or, 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 or instances of my life that, that um, I've never documented before. So, and, and particularly related to surfing. Um,
0: cathart- cathartic because they had just been a distant memory for so long. So kind of reliving them allowed yeah, some well, sort of...
1: Un- until you've sat down and written a book about yourself, it, it's, you know, it's okay to sit down and write a book about someone else. But when you're sitting down writing a book about yourself, it's sort of, you see yourself perhaps in slightly different ways as you, as you okay. go through the book. You know? and, it's, and so sometimes I guess you just have to face some facts about yourself that you didn't actually dwell on
0: before you know interesting uh did you like what you had to face oh yeah sort of <laughs> i mean <laughs> as
1: a, as a grommet i was really annoying i was i'm sure i was just so annoying
0: yeah. like
1: and you know i always thought i was you know god's child you know but um <laughs> and but it was yeah i'm, I'm you know i'm sure that parts of my life have annoyed the shit out of some people you know
0: totally and
1: you know i'm sure i was arrogant at times and i was this and i was that and it's only when you're actually writing about it that you realize some of these things
0: imagine what uh today's kids will have to reconcile in 50 years because they're shooting selfie videos of themselves posting it everywhere on social media you know
1: look i i i shake my head about some of the clothes i wore
0: yeah um, totally let,
1: let alone walking around you know with a camera in my gob or, you know in my face or you know a, fat, or a camera in my gob, in my mouth you know, which is what they do on waves now you know like totally you know and and like what are you thinking you know what are you thinking what do you think that footage is going to make it anywhere at all like other than your lounge room
0: no and oh, even yeah. then they are probably embarrassed to look at it or they should be oftentimes oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think they're going to be I think they're going to have some some they're going to have some things to reconcile with as they get older I'm sure
0: For sure. Um, so what ins- what inspired you to write the book then?
1: Um well it was really a conversation between me and John Ogden. I came to see John Ogden at um, at his house um at, at, and um and because I respected him as a black and white photographer I had negs black and white negs that I would had in, you know that I'd carried around with me for 40 years um that pretty much documented parts of the tracks story and um you know a, a confined area of and and I just because I just liked black and white photography it was probably a hangover from having to work on uh, on a black and white magazine tracks you know tracks magazine uh, we were just shooting black and white that's all we're shooting and so I fell in love with black and white photography and um some of John's stuff was great so I so I really went to him to say, you know, and it was we're in lockdown. We're in, you know, we're in, um, you know, the COVID thing was, was appearing. And so, um, it, you know, it was sort of like, what, what am I going to do, you know? And so it's so I sort of went to him to say, John, uh, what do I do with these photographs? And um, when we sort of talked more and he heard more about my story, uh, he, uh, he said, well, you just, what you need to do is you need to sit down and write a book. So that's
0: what I did. Um, I'll ask you about a couple of stories throughout the book that piqued my interest. Um, one of them was, you were talking about trying to get across the border to, into Queensland for a contest, where in the end, you only ended up catching one wave. But what stood out to me about that was that there seemed to be a distinct difference between the culture of Queensland versus the culture that you were immersed in in New South Wales. Um, is that true? And can you explain those differences and what, what
1: are you, year are would you, that have been? You're talking about the surfing culture? Yeah. 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 Yes. You, you, you picked up on that really well, that the 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 surfing culture in Queensland was all, always in my opinion and from the guys from the southern states you know like the you know the the surface oh you know like the ted spencers and the and the wayne lynchers and the semi-underground people of of the world who, who were really successful at, at in competition surfing even but gravitated more towards the free surfing thing um, the the queensland environment in surfing was always highly competitive and very contest driven you know whether it be at amateur level through the clubs or later on when it, when it became. But that was the main difference is that people coming out of Victoria and New South Wales were very much in that, if you like, morning of the earth type approach to lifestyle and, and that, whereas the Queenslanders were much more um, financially motivated and, 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 and success motivated um, than than their, their southern state brothers, you know. So, um, so yeah, there was that difference. Um, so that quite competitive, uh, concerned about the way they look, all those sorts of things. Where you know most of the people I was hanging around with, they didn't care how they looked. You know, really. You know, they yeah. were just as long as they had a pair of board shorts and 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 a, and a surfboard and a t-shirt. I mean, that was fine. Yeah. Yeah. thong, thong optional
0: right (laughs) the image the imagery in the book um sums that up really well too kind of the picture that you were painting along the way in new south wales and then getting across the border and it's like an image of uh rabbit you know just looking super cool with sunglasses on and dead serious and i think pt and ian cairns also standing there just fully chiseled and looking like they had a Look, looking a lot more athletic, I guess it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, looking much more groomed. You know, yeah. we're all shabby bunch coming up from the south. You know, like, <laughs> the first trips I did up to Queensland was with Cole Smith. You know, and I'm yep. ex-Australian champion and and you know highly 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 respected uh, innovator of of, of backhand, uh, rios and and you know almost aerial maneuvers. Uh, 360 degree turns on waves and, um, you know, full rail turns doing 360s, um, aggressive behavior on a wave. And, and he was he was shabby, like, he, you know, he's, he never shaved, he, you know, he had his long hair, goaty, you know, and uh, it's like he was, um, he, had, had a, he had a really nice personality, but he was in the water, he was another person as well. He was really aggressive and, um, you know, don't get in my way you know, pay your dues before you talk to me, you know, pay your dues before i give you a wave, you know, that sort of thing, that sort of attitude. Um, so he took me to Queensland the first time. And, um, you know, we, we saw Rabbit and you know, all those guys, you know, the the, the, the Cooley kids and stuff. We were surfing, surfing with them. We stayed on the beach, stayed on the, on the main road at uh, Gatta went to the same clubs as, as they did, even though I was underage. I, I got in somehow. Um, but... Um, you know, we were we were sort of compared to their approach to surfing, which was seemed to us to be very clean cut. Uh, our our approach to it was, was a bit different.
0: Yeah. Uh, when he was doing those carving backside three sixties, was that on a single fin? Yes. Crazy.
1: Yeah, it was gent- usually on his forehand when he was doing that, but when his his backhand attack was just. Uh, there was no one attacking a wave on his backhand the, the way Cole was. Um, I watched him surf Angari one day on the way up to and his backhand attack at Angari. I don't know if you know the wave at all. Yeah. You know the wave. yeah. And it's a sort of a bowling wave and um, um to a, to an extent. And and his backhand attack there was was just I'd never, I don't think at that stage I'd ever seen anyone actually come on a back on their backhand uh be able to come out of a massive bottom turn go up and 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 go out to do a cutback but not just do a cutback you do a cutback and then and then basically pull it up into the top of the curl and ride the curl back down in a sort of a 180 type of um, s-bend type maneuver you know and which was in those days that was pretty radical like that was totally. pretty radical stuff for a backhander on Eddie Gary. Yeah.
0: yeah um do you remember the first time you met michael peterson
1: well again it was like mike was around he was he was like part of the furniture like we were you know he was like part of the contest furniture and and, and just part of the the east coast of australia furniture like at this, the east coast of australia while it, it's sounds like it's a, it's a big place culturally in those days it was actually quite small mm. there wasn't you know there wasn't hordes of the best known surface in the world floating around it was you know it was it was really like clusters of of the best surface in australia you know so it was um, if, and so really you get to towns and uh, if the conditions were right everyone was onto the weather maps and stuff like that which were pretty archaic in those days you know they were but they knew if something was coming, they'd, a, a lot of them would head to the same spot. You know. If they knew it was going to be a, a cyclone swell, you'd, go, you'd, you'd head straight to Queensland, you wouldn't stop um, if, it was a, if it was a coming out of the north. And if it was, um, if it was a big southerly swell, you'd go straight to Lennox Head um, because that's what it breaks best on. Um, a, a, an east coast low, that sort of sits off the coast a bit and pumps east swell you'd go to Angari. So everyone knew these things, you know, like uh, the Spencers and my brother and uh, Nat and all those people were right on to you know what was coming and they'd time their run and 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 just make an educated guess as which which were the best places to to serve. So um, so Michael was was part of that part of that uh, you know scene he was just part he was there like he was part of it you know he was a couple of years older than me so he got his car earlier um so he was starting to hit spots that uh, that we surfed early and um and and timing his run going to not just sitting up at the gold coast uh, waiting for it to happen he'd he'd move around and so we'd run into him at Angary, you know ran into him at lennox you know when we got when we got to the gold coast he'd be around because you know the only reason you're going there is to surf and and that's all he did yeah, so so I sort of grew up with him a bit you know like it was I don't remember how old I was when I first met him I was pretty young um, but it had to be on those trips that I was making like a, the first trips I was making around uh, 12 13 so he would have been maybe 14 15.
0: what about uh, Greeno do you have any first initial well, memories of seeing Greeno
1: yeah well George was around a lot like he was he was he was around yeah he was he was in Australia like pretty early I think he got here in 1968 or something something like that okay uh, yeah something something like that but but obviously his his, his legend uh, preceded him I mean he was he was well known before he got here um just in the nature of his his, his weirdness and yeah and you know surf surf ethic and and surf development and and you know weird ideas that work you know and all that sort of stuff and obviously Nat and all those guys fell in love with that, you know, and, and tried to, you know, and eventually successfully succeeded in, in, in taking on board some of George's revolutionary ideas, you know, and, and it worked, it worked. Um, and, of course, he was in some of the early Bob Evans movies here in Australia. Uh, his movie, Inner Most Limits of Pure Fun, was always one of my favourite surf movies and still is. Um, and um, so I think I watched the innermost limits of pure fun at Coleroy cinema um, when I was still living there. So that was, that was like early. That was uh, so, and I sat in the aisles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Cause As I was always,
1: the yeah, I was the grommet. So I, I got,
0: you should have, you should have done it last week at the 50th anniversary no, just tempted. for old times' sake.
1: I was tempted. No, I sat in, I actually sat in the theater up the back. I sat up the back and uh, to watch it halfway anyway and the seats and it was in this really old rock and roll type theater which was really perfectly suited to this show and I sat in a seat and and, as an old leather seats and when I sat in it the bottom just went into a big d shape so I was sitting there with my knees up and my bum stuck in the stuck in the d of the leather seat yeah but that was great it was really nice yeah
0: yeah um so Greeno though give me a give me a Greeno story and Perhaps it's the one that's in the book.
1: Yeah, well, George, I'd known George for a while. I'd seen him. We'd seen him around. I'd surfed with him at Lennox. I'd, I'd um, you know, in uh, with Nat and those guys. They were all hanging out together, and he was sort of George was really had really taken up residence in Byron Bay. That was his favorite area, quite rightly so, you know, and. Um, he'd, he'd get down to he'd get down to Angara and we'd just see each other, get to know each other, and talk and stuff like that. He'd be doing the most of the talking, but you know, to a fifteen-year-old, I didn't really have much to say to George Greeno.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I just sit there and listen. But um, but yeah, so we, so yeah, the the time I hitchhiked, I think at that stage I was, yeah, I was only just fourteen or something,
0: and
1: wow. decided it was a good idea to to jump to get someone to give me a lift to the to, to the, high, the Pacific Highway up the coast because I needed to get to a contest. Um, so I hitchhiked from Sydney to Queensland um, through all sorts of different little adventures um, that, I, that I had on the way and um, finally got up there. Um, I basically got to the contest 15 minutes before it started. I was exhausted and I paddled out caught one wave in sloppy conditions and that was the end of my <laughs> that was the end of that contest so I had to, and I had to get back to Sydney for some reason so so I, I uh so I I rang around and, and tried to get a lift I got a lift to somehow I got a lift to down the coast a bit to a close to where George was and I found out he was going coming back to Sydney so he kindly offered to, to to put me in the car and yeah, because again I still didn't have my li- I didn't have a license, so I was hitching and doing whatever I had to do. So I yeah, so he he put me in this old, I think it was an old sort of Dodge or something like it was a real old American, big American car. It was like a a lounge a lounge chair on wheels. It was yeah, you know, big seats and all that sort of. carpet. No, no seat belts, just one big like a lounge chair on the, on the front seat. And so we headed down the highway. I didn't know I was in for. He uh, he 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 bought a, a packet of um, packet of nuts and raisins and dried fruit, and all that's it. Sort of, and and um, sat it on the seat between us, you know, before we left. And of course, I didn't have any money. I was I, I was sponging off everyone, and, and um, so I didn't have any food or anything on me. So that was about it. That was the only thing that was in the car. And so we, we headed down the coast, and George. You know, we talked about we had so much time to talk about stuff because, apart from being a ten-hour trip, George wouldn't travel more than forty k, 40 40 miles an hour, in a sixty-mile-an-hour zone. He'd still travel. My gosh. So he refused to go any faster than that, no matter where, no matter what sort of road it was, and so that extended the that extended the trip by a bit, and. We, you know, we talked about this. We're always talking. Whenever I speak to Georgie, we're always, we're always talking about design and, you know, conditions at different breaks and who does what, who, who surfs how, and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So long conversations, you know. And so it really took a long time to get down the coast. And I appreciated the lift, but by the time I got down there, I was, I was, I was uh, really struggling with the amount of nuts and dried fruit I'd eaten. <laughs> so I was... I was pretty cool. We got to John Whitzig's place, and all I could do was hit the toilet and try and get rid of some of it. <laughs> it, was yeah. just, it was really it was really punishing. Just I was embarrassed that that I, had, that I turned up at John Whitzig's place like that.
0: Yeah. yeah, understandable though. Um, so you talked about your first trip abroad was when you were fifteen. I presume that was to Bali with Albie for the film.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What was your awareness of Bali before you went? Did you nothing. know it as a surf nothing. destination? Nothing at all.
1: No, nothing. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the culture. But, you know, a bit. but it was again. I've been. I've been surfing, going away with albie for almost a couple of years prior to that. Um, you know, off and on, in between his deadlines and things like that. So we did a lot of trips. I asked him the other day, "Do you remember how many trips we did? You got any idea how many trips we did up the coast?" And he said, "No. He said, seriously, 'Seriously, don't.' Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And so I was again, you know, baggage, baggage in the in the seat. But fortunately, I I, I I was of some use because I could surf. So um, you know, was just I just it, it was Bali was like. He came to see mum because I was still living with my mother. And uh he, he asked her for permission to take me to Bali, you know. And of course she said, Yeah, fine, but it meant that I had to leave school, you know, pretty much. Um, so and so we've got all that sorted out. And um uh and when, when he basically asked me, I, I said to me it was just like him asking me to go up the coast with him again. It was just like another trip. This time it happened to be in a plane, you know, so I didn't even question. I didn't ask, I don't I remember asking questions about what it was like in Bali or anything like that. I was just there. I was just along for the, along for the ride and, and really it was really enjoyable.
0: And yeah, what was your experience once you landed and were immersed into the culture? And when you saw the waves, what was your take on all of it?
1: Well, we didn't actually see good waves for a little while. It was like okay, yeah, like we surfed, we surfed Kuta Beach, which is like a, a you know flat bottom sand thing that's Really gets any real lengths in its banks, so it's a, you know, we sort of fluffed around there for a while, and then as some swell picked up, we noticed that Cooter Reef we, we could see Cooter Reef from the beach actually feathering, so we thought we better go out there and have a look what that was doing. So we surfed Cooter Reef for for a couple of days, and that was fun, you know. And we we're thinking, well, what else is there? And uh, so we ended up going out on you know, Albie and I went out on. Two motorbikes again. That's another first with Albie. It's, it's, uh, it was the first time I'd ever ridden a motorbike, so so I was um, so I wasn't very good at it. But yeah, the uh, but he he led the way, and we we got out to got out to um, got out onto the bucket uh, near Uluwatu, and and uh, Albie had been out there before to the temple, and he'd, he'd sort of sussed out that there's there's potential like further down the reef, and and we stopped sort of. Somewhere short of the, the temple this time, and, and, and went in and just had a bit of a nosy around and, and, um, and got back that night to Kuda. It uh, took us all day to sort of to, to finish the, the, the ride. Um, and when we got back to Kuda, we went to dinner with the guys. And I remember very clearly uh, someone said to him, Well, what did you, you find today? To Alabi. And he said, I think we found something. Yeah. And so they got organized and, and uh, in those days, Bali was, was you know, it took a little while to get organized into the BMOs and the, just the transportation on how you're going to get dropped off, how you get picked up, how you're going to, what food can you take, what, you know. And so, so it took them a couple of days to get sorted, and we ended up, that's when we went back out to it, that's when we went out and, and walked into a lot and, uh and realized it was better than we even thought.
0: Um. It probably goes without stating, but I'll state it for the listeners that these stories are detailed in the book, and yeah. so they're well worth doing a deep dive into. Um, had Uluwatu ever been surfed before? Do you think?
1: Um, there's been speculation by by a number of people about that. You know, there's never been any proof of it. Um, by the way, the natives reacted to me to to the whole to the whole crew that went out there. You know, they were they were they were scared. I mean they they sort of they couldn't work out why these idiots were paddling out in the water that they would never ever go out swimming. Like, you know, they're not they weren't big swimmers in those days. They used to pick around the reef at low tide and to to catch these little fish and stuff like that. They they weren't fishing off the reef even, you know, they were too scared of the waves and they probably lost a few people, you know, to the ocean. Um, and also the other things out there there were. You know, there, there's there is sea snakes out there. That, you know, there's 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 some dangerous stuff hanging around out there if you're not really aware of it and and how to deal with it. Um, so they were they were you could tell that they were nervous that we were actually paddling out there. Um, but when we by the time once we got out there and we started surfing and getting a few waves, the the, the reaction on the on the on the cliffs were just like. They, they'd just cheer the entire time, like they'd be waving their arms and cheering as we are riding, as we are right away. And then you'd, you'd kick off, kick out, and, and start paddling out, and it'd be dead quiet. They'd be dead silent, you know? They wouldn't, wow. not a noise, but when you're standing up, dancing on waves is the way that they translated it. Um, it was, yeah, they were, they were really excited. They didn't look like they'd seen that before. Yeah. So, so, and I've never seen, there's never been any documentation, you know, there's nothing written or, or photographs, no photographs to substantiate any earlier things. So my approach to it is we were the first people to be documented to serve Uluwatu, you know, and, and I think that's a fairly diplomatic way to get out of it. You know.
0: Yeah, and that, that makes sense. Um. I'm always interested when you have photographs of something or with this you have a film of it, sometimes your memory just becomes the image that you've seen so many times over the years. How vivid are your original memories or have they been replaced by the film version of the memories?
1: Um, the good question. The, the, my memories are based on a <coughs> 15 excuse me, on a 15-year-old kid. And I had, the luxury I had with compared to all the other people that were on that trip is that I was that much younger than them. So my actual, and I wasn't very distracted by the cultural um, aspects of Bali. I was only there for one reason, and that was to go surfing. And not, I wasn't there to go surfing just because I was taken there by Albie to film. I was going surfing because that's what I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to do. So I was very focused on that, and um, and so my my memories are are, um, are very vivid, and they have been uh, over over the years. Uh, and I have put pen to paper about my recollections of that trip prior to doing the book. So I had reference to go back to and say, well. Is that really the way I remember it? And so I believe i think that I think my recollections are really more practical, more more sort of on the ground memories than what's in the movie. Because for me, it was um, it was probably slightly embarrassing to to actually sit there and, and watch myself on screen uh, because I never really thought that I was as as good at surfing as some of my peers. You know, like the Terry Fitzgeralds the, Nat Young the Ted Spencers, the Wayne Lynch, you know, and to see me up there getting quite a place was pretty embarrassing. I, you know, I actually just found it a, a bit embarrassing. So,
0: and I, I, never,
1: I never really felt uh, in, in some way, like, you know I'll take it now, I'm, you know, I'm 66 years old, I'll take it. I'll take the credit, but um, I never really felt that I was... Uh, competitive to the way that those guys served. And I thought they were much better surfers than I was.
0: Well, what did that film do for you as a surfer once it was released?
1: Uh, well, the film's always been very kind to me. That it's, um, you know, anyone I was talking to Justin Mish, who, who redigitized this the film. Uh, so it's, it's like, um, you know, anyone who's had any, any surfers that had anything to do with Morning of the Earth have felt the sun on their back. You know, so um, and I believe that to be true. That the, the 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 ripple effect that Morning of the Earth has created is not only um, exposure, but it's more. It's always it's always nice and positive. It's really positive. It's all positive feedback. It's it's. You don't have uh, the competitive nature. Of, there's no competitive nature in the film. It's all about surfing to surf. And uh, that's the conversation. And, you know, it's, it's always... I, very rarely have I had any sort of negative comment to me about, about Morning of the Earth. And it has opened doors. I mean, it's made people, you know, they, they, they're happy to talk to me because of, um, because of my involvement in Morning of the Earth yeah, so, as a surfer.
0: Did you get um, opportun- sponsor opportunities, job opportunities when you came home?
1: Um, not necessarily, no. Uh, oh, Rip Curl was sponsoring me as well as Hutchinson Surfboards when I went to Bali. Uh, but <clears throat> Rip Curl didn't have to spend much because there was I didn't have any... They didn't make board shorts and all they made was wetsuits. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't need a wetsuit. <laughs> but it was more product, yeah, and Hutchinson Surfboards... Yeah, well they they were making my boards for a while. So um, but it did make doors easier for me to to be able to get um you know help in that way, like to to you know, to be able to get product and stuff like that from, from surf companies. Sure, you'll need some product, mate. Yeah, go for it, you know. But it wasn't it wasn't like anyone walked up with a with a contract and said, Yeah, look, because those days that, that wasn't what was happening. That the surf companies didn't have the money, they didn't have the resources to sponsor a surfer to go surfing,
0: right? And that's, um, yeah. It seemed daughters.
1: like you were... I did. I, I did get a small stipend from um, Hutchinson Surfboard when we first got back, which sort of kept me going for <coughs> for a few months while I was up up the coast at at, um, at uh, Angauri after the after the morning of the Earth, and um, so that as far as sponsor, actual dollar sponsorship. That's probably the only dollar sponsorship I've got out of, out of uh, surfing in my life. Uh, the rest of it's all been work.
0: Right. And a decade or so of that was spent at Tracks Magazine? Yeah. You have photographs. Obviously you said that you started this book process with a cache of black and white photos that you had come across and that you had shot. And some of those are included in the book. Um, how did you discover photography?
1: Um, photography discovered me. I went to work for Tracks magazine, essentially to sell ads. Um, okay. They gave me a base job because um, I was working in the city selling jeans, and one of a, a good mate, uh, Frank Peters, who I knew well already uh, from Tracks, from spending time at Tracks. And The other guys, but Frank walked in one day and saw me, found me working there uh, and bought some jeans off me. And um, and came back about two weeks later said, Mate, do you want a job? You know, up on the northern beaches, on the beach, you can surf whenever you want as long as we meet deadline. Uh, go out and talk to a few advertisers and see what you can get in money. And immediately, I went, Sure, not a problem, that'd be great. <laughs> so so back to Whale Beach, back up to the northern beaches instead of being in the city. It was terrific. You yeah. so that's how it started there. And, uh, and part of that job is ultimately they, not straight away, but eventually they, they sort of said, well, we need you to, instead of having to lug a photographer around, how about you just take some shots? So Albie, Albie gave me a, an old Nikon, an old bashed up Nikon with a 50mm lens on it and he said, here's some film, here's the camera just go and shoot what you can, see what happens. So I sort of, it was pretty much that. That's where I first started taking photos.
0: Got it. I thought based on um, the imagery that was in the book that maybe you had discovered photography first when you were young. No. Got it. No, no. Um, you
1: know, the, the, the experience of being around people like Albie and uh, Frank right. and, and John Witzig and their dedication to the, to the art and to the you know to the to the finery of, of photography and, and how it all works um, was I'm sure I picked some stuff up from them and albi you know like particularly you know Alby was always talking about light and stuff when he was doing footage of morning of the earth and stuff like that. so I did I think I picked up some, some basic concept of photography but the, the, the practical side of it of actually taking the photos is, is something I just was, Handed, and but I loved it. I thought it was great. I I started to really enjoy it.
0: Can you tell me about uh, your time that you spent with Hunter S. Thompson? (laughs)
1: Yeah, Hunter, Hunter, Hunter. Yeah, Hunter's like I think it was at one of his times. Like he came out for a book launch, a big book talk. Strangely enough, of where the buffalo runs. So, oh yeah, which is the book after. Um, um, with uh, fear and loathing, and um, <coughs> a, a, a promoter um, who put the show on knew us from Tracks. Uh, he was he was associated with Tracks, and, and he saw Tracks as a possible uh, as a possible uh, promotional exercise. So so they they invited invited me to go and 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 see Hunter and, and all that. So I'd never read his book. I, I when I went. I was just going as okay. It's a free gig, you know. I'll go along, you know, and see what see what's happening. Um, and before uh, I sat down, they had a reserved seat for me, and um, and I was going to sit down, and the the, the promoter came out off, off stage and grabbed me and said, "Come out, come backstage and meet Hunter before the start." <coughs> and um, so that was my my introduction to Hunter, and he was backstage doing what Hunter does, and and um, and you know, getting ready to go up and do a book talk, and um, and I didn't get I didn't get I stayed backstage for the entire um, you know watched the show, but from backstage. And so when he came off, we chatted more and 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 it all got friendly. And he and he was he, I felt like he was he was stuck in the city, like he didn't really want to be just stuck in the city, you know, when he wasn't on stage. And so I gave him the option of, of a having a look around sydney uh, around the beaches at sydney in in the eastern suburbs of sydney and and b coming out i was i was living at Whale beach at the time so and and come and stay at Whale beach if you want you know like and and just chill out and and uh and he came out and stayed for a week and uh and i just shaved him uh, around the eastern suburbs of sydney in my old holden that i'd re-sprayed and had a couple of but like it had wings on it on the back, you know, small wings, but reminded Hunter of, of his dodge at home. And um and uh so there was Hunter perched up in the back uh, with his with his cigarette holder and his hat on, and um, and me and the the lady I was going out with at the time in the front seat. And it was um it, and it was there was a lot of commentary as we were driving around and and uh you know, and he really appreciated sort of just getting Away from the glare and away from the city, and to sort of just see real life. And, and so, when you come up to Whale Beach, yeah, we just hung around and, you know, and, and God, what do you do for a week with Hunter S. Thompson? I mean, you, you know, it's a pretty interesting, it was a pretty interesting week. And, you know, to, I, I, to recount too many of the stories, I don't think I could because there was plenty of them. Like, he's great yeah. stories. Yeah.
0: Did he take any interest in surfing?
1: Not necessarily. No, he was more. Well, ultimately, Hunter was a, a reporter, like he was a he was an observer, you know. And so, and I like that about him, you know, because I do that. I do a bit of that myself, you know. I'm a good listener, and I'm a I'm, and I and I like observing things, you know, in detail. And Hunter was very similar. So he was. Just, I think he was just more interested in in the the. Well, what people were up to. What 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 does what does everyone else do? You know.
0: Yeah. He knew what he did. Yeah, well, I'll encourage listeners to uh, get the book to, le- to hear about a similar experience that you had with Bill Murray, who came out um, to represent or to play Hunter in the film version of that book. So you don't have to retell it here, but they should definitely go read about it. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, given your time with Tracks and then working in the publishing industry, after that you did a great job explaining the role that tracks played for surf culture at that time and we've seen surf magazines not really make the transition successfully into the digital era and even the ones that still exist they don't necessarily play the same role that they did in that era that you were working for the magazines so I'm curious from your perspective, do you have any idea what missteps were made, or are there any magazines that you think are doing a great job now kind of representing to surf culture what they used to
1: well, yeah good good question mate. The, yeah I think I think some like I think there's two markets now and it's one is the digital market um, and and one is the, the independent publisher role and I think both of them have a, have a place um, personally I like Because I come out of magazines and come out of publishing, I like the smell of ink and paper. So, you know, it's just something that that gives me a buzz when I'm going to read something. Um, And so I much prefer to go for (coughs) hard copy, you know, hard printed copies of things that I find them easier and probably just more familiar way to read. Um, And and so I think the, the independent publishers are probably... Uh, are probably staying a little truer to the essence of surfing, um, and perhaps the online guys are uh, making the most of, of revenue that that is now diverted into, you know, the, the internet market. You know, and so um, I, I think it's. I mean, I, I really I really admire the tracks guys for for uh, Publishing independently and to still to, to have a magazine of that history um, be be allowed to exist, you know, um, it's the same as the film. Like it, it, it lives next to the film, and it's um and it's just it's just reassuring to see that it actually still can survive. Um, the online things come and go. I mean, you see you see magazines, and they can come and go in a, in a second, in a split second. You know, they they're, they're either here or they're gone. You know. At least with printed publications, you've got some you can you can refer to the refer to it. You can find it again. You know? And so I don't have I don't have a, a sort of a real opinion about the the other publications or the, the other online stuff. I find it hard to regard them as 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 magazines. You know, I know they call themselves magazines, but I have a bit of trouble just mentally absorbing that. So. Uh, I only regard a magazine as being a a hard printed copy of a a publication. That's a magazine. Yeah. And so the online thing to me, I don't know what the name is, but it's uh, I think it's something different to magazine.
0: Well, you know, I feel like Trax, Surfing World, The Surfer's Journal, they're all still in print, and they're still telling the same stories. Or, you know, uh, they have the same ethos and the same kind of storytelling that they did in their heyday. But there's now so many other inputs in the surfing world as well. So, when I was young, I had to get my surf information from that magazine. And so, its influence was so much greater. And now, Surfing World shows up and it's the same thing it always was, but it exists in a different world and it doesn't have the influence that it had. And so I don't know of a surf company or a surf magazine that's made that transition to where they're still printing the magazine, but then they also have the digital footprint and influence um, that represents what the magazine used to represent. But there is an example outside of surfing, and that's National Geographic. Like National Geographic had the print publication from my youth, but they've successfully transitioned into a television station probably more than one now uh all of their social media properties are all really well curated they tell really great story and it just represents exactly what the magazine always did but on a different medium you know
1: yeah yeah i've um i've been a big fan of national geographic i I was a subscriber for a long time um until i had to move house a few times and I just couldn't take them all with me. Yeah. But um. But yeah, they. I think you, I, I. I have to agree with you. The National Geographic have done a great job, and, and because they had such a strong ethos, they they had that that uh, you know, they they're really documentary. You know, they they totally. Yeah. So, they they were they were reporting. You know, more or less reporting rather than, um, making stuff up or or, or embellishing stories or. Right. Know, using, using visuals that weren't actually something to do with the article. You know? And so, yeah, yeah. I respect it a lot for that. Yeah, And the fact that they're still on a newsstand is you know, incredible. Yeah.
0: It's timeless because of that. Mm. You know, Those stories will resonate regardless of whatever trend is happening. Um, have you gone back to Bali often since the filming of Morning of the Earth?
1: Yeah, I've been back to Bali a lot, yeah. Yeah, I did particularly, like, for the first, you know, my, my golden days, are right from 1971 to 1981, that's what I call it, you know, the you know, golden years in Bali, uh, because there were, by it, even by 1981, there wasn't really a whole lot of people surfing on a daily basis. So, it was, um, you know, the Indos hadn't, I mean, the Indos had only just started surfing, so they weren't dominating. Um so you could still get out of Padang and, and stuff and surf on your own or surf with a couple of mates. Um, <clears throat> uh, but then I started to look further afield. I um, sort of I only went to Bali really if I if it was necessary for work or you know for someone I had to see or something like that. And I would have a surf there, but um, I you know, started venturing to the Manta and to Maldives. Um, you know those sorts of places. Um, and the mental-wise, are just endless. It just like so, there's so much there that, that it would take a life oh, take more than a lifetime to actually spend that much time to to find to, to actually go to all of those places. So so it's um, yeah, so it's you know it's been just a, a different a different journey pretty much all on boats. Um, you know, whereas with Bali it was it was just more land-based. So it was a different, a different experience, but, um, I don't know, every time I surf a wave in Indo, it always reminds me of Bali. Yeah. No matter where I am.
0: <laughs> sure. Um, how is the, how is writing this book? Has it reconnected you with family at all? Telling your family story? Yeah, it
1: has. Yeah. It's, it, it's, um, yeah, it has, it, it's forced me to reconnect with, um, with a couple of, in particular, a couple of, um, family members. Yeah. And, um, and one i hadn't seen for uh, my oldest brother i hadn't seen for uh, we worked out for nearly forty years forty five years. Um, the family thought he was dead.
0: Oh my gosh,
1: yeah, we all believed that he was dead. Um, well I did, but I was the youngest, so I was getting told that that's what happened. that was the situation you yeah. know. and um, so so it was great to reconnect and uh, uh, he's coming along as his, as his current uh, Reincarnation as a woman. He's coming along to the Morning of Earth showing at um Ranwick. The the, the third showing of the film. Yeah.
0: That's incredible. So this is Rita, right?
1: Rita, yeah.
0: Um, who you do talk about in the book. And um so has that been have has she read the book? Has your family approved of the book? Um, has it all been positive?
1: She's had the book for a while. I don't know whether she's finished it. Um, because uh, you've only been distributing it for a short period of time, so yeah people some people just don't read that quickly. Um, in regards to my other siblings, uh, uh, my, uh, I've got two other sisters who've only just got their book and they're not they're not big readers, and they're not um, they're probably different culturally to to me you know, my uh, Butch and myself were probably the black sheeps of the family, yeah. Yeah. in regards to surfing terms. Like surfing wasn't actually, you know, the most respectable thing to do with your life when I was growing oh, And we liked that. Yeah. We yeah. enjoyed that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell me what's your relationship like with surfing now? Are you 66 years old? Yeah. And how often are you surfing?
1: Well, I'm not surfing much. Um, I've found COVID very difficult to deal with because I'm in the city. Uh, I found I didn't really. As you get older, you sort of get wearier of of health conditions. Um, I've got a couple of, I've got a couple of, um, well, I've got um, bone growth in my in my neck and stuff, which is giving me grief. Um, So it makes it fairly painful for me um, to paddle. So I have to put up with that, and also the the actual number of people in the water and and, you know, the, the change in self-gratification of, you know, the, the whole environment in the water, as we are talking about before, how many photos can you take yourself? I mean, seriously, is that what you go surfing for? I don't know. You know I don't yeah. know. If, um, if I can, you know, if I can, it's really only been the last year that, that I've struggled a bit in the water. And I'm also of the mind that if I can't surf my best, well, I don't really want to be out there. Mm. so are you
0: are you resigned to it or are you struggling through that realization
1: no no i'm not resigned to it i'm just sort of taking the time that i mean i've been very lucky i've i've had a life of surfing and um my body's telling me that maybe you know i should have looked after it a bit more you know because they're pretty much all surf my only problems are basically surf related oh
0: really
1: physically yeah it's uh you know the the, the, there's some aches and pains that have come from you know the the rigors of surfing every day for the majority of life, so I can only I can only you know be grateful for where you know, the number of waves I've caught and the number of places I've been, and um, and you know I'll probably you know in the right environment you know the right place and time, yeah I'll probably have a chart you know I'll probably get out there but it's not really priority.
0: Is there, um, in hindsight, is there any cross-training, exercise, and/or diet that you would have implemented to uh, extend your longevity?
1: Um, uh, not really. I wasn't huge on training. I mean, my training was surfing. Um, I, I, I did a, I did a lot. I did yoga. A yoga I found to be pretty good. Uh, the physical aspects of yoga I really enjoyed. And that did, you know, like I, I, I utilised that to, to, to limber up and do those sorts of things. But in regards to, like, overdoing, I, I, I think personally I don't like, I, I don't understand overtraining. I don't really understand that because you see people break down with it. You see them, you know, struggle with it. Uh, you know, elite sports people. Particularly, uh, but I never saw the point in that. Um, you know, swimming. I used to swim a lot, like you know, to outside of surfing, like swimming in store pools and things like that. So th- probably those two swimming, swimming, um, you know, doing laps the black line and um, and yoga were probably the two things that I did that I did participate in that, that I think would help you
0: surfing. Yeah. Um. The final question for everybody interviewed is about the last surfboard that you rode. Whose boards are you riding at this point?
1: Well, at the moment, I've got. I've got um, the last board I surfed was was a uh, was a five foot eight um, five foot eight Aussie right sort of zappy little surfboard that came out of America. I can't remember the brand name, but it was Aussie gifted it to me. on a, on a birthday, you know, of course, Aussie's good mates with with my son, with one of my sons, and um, and so the last the last surf I had was on on five foot eight, and it was it was like oh, I mean it had had triple flyers or something on it, and you know it was uh, so just happy little surf. I didn't catch anything on it. It's like a small whiteboard
0: Yeah, I'm struggling to think whose boards he rides. I've seen him riding boards that look like that all the time, but I don't know what shape.
1: He rides a whole lot of different people, but he had a, he had an okay. American company doing 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 his boards for him at, at that stage. Yeah. Okay. So um, but he's he's work, he works with, he works with different people all the time. Joel Fitzgerald. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's there's another couple of companies that he does stuff with, uh, but you'd never know whose boards he was riding because of because he covers it up with all his artwork.
0: That's okay. That makes perfect sense. That's why I don't know. But the, how'd the board go?
1: Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I loved that board. You know, that was it was one of my favourite boards. Like, uh, and it went so well. And you know, it was quick, maneuverable. Yeah. And could hold a line. So yeah, it was. Um, it was. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that board. I ran a five foot eight. That was great. But that was only, as you say, it's only. That's only in the last twelve months. So I haven't. It's not like I could have totally given up. And yeah. I think, at six, at sixty-six, surfing a five-eight. There's not many of them; those people around.
0: No, that's that is surprising. Um, I I fully understand your lack of desire based on having the ability to surf good quality waves for so long and without crowds, because it's a lot harder for me to muster desire at the age of forty, unless the waves are good. You know, I'll take my dog to the beach, and it's like. Unless it's shoulder high or head high, I'm just going to walk the dog instead of going surfing because there's no point in me getting out there for waist-high surf.
1: And believe me, mate, it, once you get to my age, once you're sort of like approaching 67 or, you know, you're approaching, God, call it 70, once you're starting to approach 70, some of the important things in life may not be what, you, what they were before, you know. like I used to think it was important I just surf everything, you know, surf, 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 surf. But now it's, um, you know, know, watch and listen. I do a lot of watching and I do a lot of listening.
0: Interesting. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, lesson learned. Um, And a lot of lessons learned throughout your book too. So congratulations on it. It's a really, really beautiful book.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I, I really hope, I hope people in the States get it, you know, because I was concerned a little bit about, the um, the you know the parochial nature of it um you know to australia um, but i hope it transcends that because there are not only um, you know a surfing message in there and and, 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 a, and a lifestyle message but it's you know there is there is some social messages in there if you if you take your time to read it carefully
0: it absolutely transcends and um uh, little things I mean so many of those little stories are just colorful and whimsical and wonderful to read but then the things like i was asking about queensland versus new south wales or the gold coast specifically like we know that that culture is so distinctly different now the high performance shortboard thing on the gold coast versus let's say byron bay but to hear the origins of it and why it was that way, or the early days of that surf culture developing, I had never considered before. You know, so it was great to see that stuff too.
1: Oh, I'm so pleased that you, you've been able to glean something out of it that, that 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 you know resonates with you. That and it's something that you, you haven't seen before. That's really exciting for me. Yeah, yeah
0: totally. There's lots of that in there. So. All right, well, Stephen, thank you again for taking time out of your Saturday morning. This has been awesome.
1: And thank you, mate, I really appreciate your time. You know, you know um, I've been highly recommended to you to do this, so so I'm sure you'll do a great job.
0: Yeah. That's nice to hear, thank you. All right, mate. All right, okay. we'll be in touch.
1: I don't know how to turn this off, so I'll go and get John.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. I'll be in touch, thanks. <laughs> All right, bye. I could build me a
1: castle with memories just to have somewhere to go
0: count the days and the nights that it takes to get back in the saddle again feed the pigeons some clay turn the night into day and start talking again when you know what to say Thank you very kindly Stephen Cooney and also John Ogden for facilitating this conversation. I've linked to Unearthed and how to purchase it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Also, everything Morning of the Earth is available on morningoftheearth.com. There's a really epic coffee table book that they put together for this anniversary. Um, So I encourage you to grab that or give it as a gift. Of course, the film is worth watching. And then they made the soundtrack available on vinyl as well. So that's super cool. And uh, I think that is all that I have for you this week. Scott Bass and I published an episode of Spit Podcast yesterday, recapping the Portugal event and much, much more. Chas Smith is actually off in Mexico uh, this week, but we are planning to catch up via Zoom At the end of the week so go grab that that show is called the grit and then i will be back here on surf splendor next week as always so thank you for listening thank you for supporting our work and thank you for sharing the show with friends my name is david scales for surf splendor and i hope that you take the time to get back into the water share some waves and as always shred on